Hi there, and welcome back to Film School Fess-Ups. I'm your host, Drew Morton, Associate Professor of Mass Communication at Texas A&M University in Texarkana. Before I get started with today's episode, I thought it might be fun to uh, briefly walk through five of my first watches of August, my top five. Um, so I try to go through movies I haven't seen before. I have a very long list, obviously, and not all of them make it onto this show. Some of them are, are deeper cuts um, that don't really uh, warrant the same attention as uh, some of the canonical films. Some do, some don't. Um, some I can't get folks to sit down and talk to me about because maybe they haven't seen them. Um, so my, my uh, August 1st watches um, were alphabetically dragging in. Um, first time watching a King Who film, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I think my expectations were maybe a little different for, for what it ended up being, um, coming out of, coming to the uh, genre through things like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I, I really wasn't sure what to expect, so um, yeah, I'm excited to keep going with them now and watch Touch of Zen, the, uh, the final fight in Dragon Inn was pretty great. Um, but yeah, I was kind of surprised at how kind of sparse it was and, and dialed back in terms of the plotting. So, um, kind of reminded me of the, uh, the different, like, Lone Wolf and Cub and Zatoichi films where, you know, it really is just a focus on the sword play, whereas I had kind of assumed that the, uh, art cinema pedigree of, uh, Dragon Inn might have brought it a bit more. Um, Heaven Can Wait, an Ernst Lubitsch film, which I hadn't seen before. Um, I really enjoyed it, um... Compared to some of the other earlier pieces, I was a little less taken with it than I might have been. Uh, something like Trouble in Paradise. Um, mainly because I felt like some of the dynamics had been kind of old hat, and he was repeating some of the motifs from his other works. Um, especially, like, there's there's set pieces and interpersonal relationships that kind of come straight out of... Designed for Living, which I watched again maybe a month and a half ago. So I was I was a little underwhelmed. I, I did enjoy it, though. Um, House of Wax, the uh, Vincent Price film I was able to see in 3D as part of the the uh, LACMA Double Vision 3D exhibit. They showed it at the uh, Cinematheque or the Arrow a um, couple weeks back. And uh, I had obviously seen pieces of House of Wax before, most notably the scene with the guy playing paddle ball that is extremely jarring. Um, but I, I really appreciated it. Um, Vincent Price was a revelation. The makeup is great. Um, the the different set pieces, I, I enjoyed the staging and depth. Um, I really didn't have terribly high expectations for House of Wax, uh, but uh, I was mistaken there, and it was uh, very rewarding. Uh, it was one of those films that's kind of a first... Uh, in terms of technological accomplishments, that is actually very, very watchable. The last two, uh, Molly's Game, I saw on the airplane coming back to Texarkana for the school year. I wasn't really sure what to expect. I, I like Aaron Sorkin's writing. I'm also fairly underwhelmed with most biopics, but I thought what Molly's Game had going for it, obviously Jessica Chastain is fantastic, um, was actually the supporting cast. So you've got Michael Sarah playing a coded character who's very much supposed to be Tobey Maguire, who's just a complete, horrible, vindictive asshole, and he's so good at it, and you're not really... You, I, I, I guess I never expected Michael Sarah to really be able to play that dynamic. I'm so used to his kind of George Michael 
on uh, Arrested Development and Scott Pilgrim persona where he's kind of the, the lovable loser and uh, he, he really nails Vindictive well. Um, the other kind of MVP of Molly's game, oh, uh, Idris Elba obviously is a great lead too, um, was uh, Bill Camp. Bill Camp is this kind of unique looking character actor. I hadn't seen him in a whole lot until um, the HBO series The Night Of. He plays, I think Detective Box was his name. But you, you really can't overlook him now that he's kind of become a supporting star in all of these different films and television shows over maybe the last year or two. And in uh, Molly's Game, he plays this gambler who's has some self-restraint, and he, he's typically a solid card player, but uh, he goes full tilt. He loses a game to a pretty bad player in one scene and he's not in the film for more than maybe two or three scenes but the scene in which he goes full, full tilt and becomes very self-destructive uh, is one of the best moments in the uh, in the film and finally um, the fifth one finishing up that uh, Sam Fuller box set that I was working my way through was Underworld USA which uh, like most Sam Fuller films was, was quite the treat so today I have Ben Sampson on a good friend of mine we'll be discussing the film Grease Ben holds a Ph.D. in Cinema and Media Studies from the University of California at Los Angeles. Before entering graduate school, he worked as a freelance videographer, an editor in documentary films, and global NGO projects. His primary area of scholarly interest explores the interaction, or the intersection between media industries and cultural ideology. Ben has published numerous works in journals and online magazines, and he sits on the advisory board of In Transition. He currently teaches at Moore Park College. Well, thank you for joining me today, Ben. Um, I'd like to start off with the general question. What what got you into films? Yeah, uh, well, thank you for having me, Drew. Um, I think growing up in the middle of nowhere <laughs> was one of the big reasons that I, I got into loving movies. I, I grew up uh, in a, a beautiful area of California, but farmland California, and a uh, child of the 80s, uh, there was no cable out where I lived. Uh, I kind of missed that whole cable generation that was our, our, our generation, our youth. And, uh, and even like over the, the antenna channels weren't always good. So uh, we really relied on the VCR a lot. And I think in my family and amongst my siblings, I was one of five kids. I, I just really was the one who kind of became more and more passionate about movies as we got older and we had a selection of, of videos, uh, some bought mostly taped off the TV that we'd watch over and over and over again. And, um, and I think just that kind of isolation of activity, you know, you can only run around the farm so many times. Um, what movies were in that pile? Yeah. Yeah. I think the first movie we ever got, I was, when we got a VCR given to us at Christmas and it came along with a taped off the taped off the TV uh, Ewoks Adventure that was our, our first VHS I remember it well is that the one uh, with Wilfred Brimley or is that the other one that's the other one Caravan that's the other one yeah. which I was shocked that there was another Ewoks movie because I watched the the first one so many times um, Star Wars was definitely in the rotation um uh, as we got older, the, the collection kind of got bigger and bigger. Uh, Princess Bride and E.T. was probably my favorite kid, uh, 
E.T. was probably my favorite movie uh, as a kid growing up. Um, and then uh, odd, odd ones, interesting ones. My 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 parents were very religious, but my dad liked odd and interesting films from time to time, like Trading Places mm. was constantly watched in my household. So I married an axe murderer as we got older. He really loved that movie. He, he, he had a buffet of, of different movies that he really loved, like French Kiss for some reason. And... Uh, Waking Ned Divine. He 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 showed that one to everybody. <laughs> so uh, so he was kind of you know big into movies too, and and renting movies when we got a chance to was a big deal. We didn't actually get to go to the movie theaters all that much. I think I saw one movie in a theater, The Black Cauldron, uh, which was not a great one. Um, before the age of ten, and then yeah, What's when it? I got older in high school, it was more movies in a the theater, and and I fell in love with that experience. What's interesting about this is your story is very similar to like the last four guests I've had, uh, Caitlin really? and Jacinta, um, and even myself to a certain degree, right? We we got familiar with movies through VCRs, and we're from, I think if I asked them, I didn't ask them, but just from the context of the conversation, I got the impression that most of us were from lower middle class households, so it was just one of these things where you had a couple VHS tapes laying around. And you constantly watch the same couple movies. And yeah, there'd be this weird amalgam of childhood favorites, you know, from the 80s, like Back to the Future. But yeah, there'd be like a weird cable straggler in there. Like my dad had, um, I think the tape with Ghostbusters, he had a beta. So we had a beta tape with Ghostbusters. And then it had the Curtis Hansen scripted film Silent Partner on it with Elliot Gould. Which is actually a really good movie. I've never seen that, but I've heard about that one. And uh, I think the first Curtis Hansen joint I saw was River Wild. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With, with the kid. Bacon and Meryl Street. But uh, I've heard about that one. I've actually wanted to see it for a while. Yeah, it's not bad. But it, it was always there's this traumatic moment where at the end of the film, Christopher Plummer cross-dresses as a woman so he can rob a bank. And so there's this <laughs> moment where there's like a shootout in the bank and it's kind it's bloody. And I remember being a kid and like, what the fuck is this movie? This is crazy, <laughs> right? And then we'd get to Ghostbusters, but we'd always see like that last five minutes of Silent Partner while we were fast-forwarding to get to Ghostbusters. That's fantastic. But, yeah. yeah, and then I had major blind spots like Ghostbusters because like, my family, as I mentioned already, was pretty religious, so it was a constant negotiation with content. Like, like even television shows, we weren't allowed to watch the Smurfs because that had witchcraft in it. And because the villain was was a wizard. And, no, my, my parents uh, were very much the same way where it was like violence was okay, but anything involving Satan wasn't. So like The Stand, I remember I couldn't watch because it was, you know, religious and in a I bad way. I snuck that one in when it aired on television. If we could if we could get around maneuver that way, you know, that was that was always fun. And there were the movies that I just wouldn't let my parents see because I knew if they got to see them once like Highlander, I, I, which I was oddly obsessed with as a kid. Uh, I knew if they saw it once, they would never let me see it again. <laughs> so. What was their what was their uh, critique of Ghostbusters, or what was their concern? Uh, just the the presence of of ghosts and magic, and this kind of you know, it wasn't like a it wasn't about uh, the spiritual. Uh, it wasn't about spirituality from a Christian perspective. It was about it from a kind of like a Halloween perspective, which we, it was many years that we didn't even celebrate Halloween. I was going to ask. Was, 
that was Satan's holiday, that, that, that type of thing. But, um, I think I went trick or treating once when I was a kid anyhow. Um, so yeah, but I don't know. I think that there was a, you know, kind of living with movies as a child was, it was a real special quality and they had a big impact on me. And my father, you know, it was odd which ones he decided to like, but he would become very obsessive about them and he would think really deeply about them. And I, and I felt very kind of, uh, stirred by that. And, uh, and I think, and then the movie going experience at a movie theater was always like this, like, diamond it was like this 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 lost arc it was this it was this like thing that if you, we could actually get to go to a movie theater it was a you know a priceless uh treasure and much like going out to eat because we didn't go out to eat much when i was a kid so anytime i go to a movie theater still today i feel like i'm getting away with something i feel like it's this this fantastic treat uh, anytime I go out to eat, I kind of feel the same way too, but especially with movies, there was always a special quality. But then as I got older, like I got into other movies that really my family wasn't into and I was kind of renting on my own and, uh, and I kind of recognized that I was into movies in a way that other kids my own age were, weren't like I, I got into merchant ivory films in junior high and, hmm. you know, I was trying to extol the virtues of remains of the day to my junior high friends <laughs> who weren't really having anything about it. You know, I'm like, you haven't seen remains of the day. No, oh, dude, you have to, it's so tragic. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, uh, I think one of the first films that really made me start thinking about like filmmaking and how did they make this and how was it shot? Uh, was oddly, a uh, uh, Searching for Bobby Fischer, a, a, a 90s mm-hmm. film that uh, Steve Zellian directed that just has gorgeous cinematography in it. And I think that's what I love the most about it. One, it was about a kid, but two, it was, uh, and kids love movies about kids, but it was also about, uh, it, it was shot so beautifully. And um, yeah, so you, you just you just start to develop a, a kind of passion for it. So did you know when you went to college that studying film was something you wanted to do or did that you discover that along the way? Because that's, that's been one of the other interesting paths in the different conversations. I've had so many of the, the PhD students I've talked to started off as English majors or history majors who just kind of fell into movies and, and realized at a certain point that this was something legitimate and something they could focus on either through a really good class or through reading a book for you know pleasure or something like that what what got you into movies as a discipline i think a couple different things um i think i realized i i was interested in movies in a real way when i took my first intro to film class actually in high school they offered it as an elective and they did you know i'd never really even though i was into movies it was kind of whatever was on hand at my house or whatever was on television and I'd never really seen black and white films before. So all of a sudden I was watching silent movies and they were just kind of moving chronologically through the decades in that class throughout the year. And you got to see film evolve from silent to sound to screwball to, you know, film noir into all the way into the sixties. And I think we stopped at the eighties and when new Hollywood comes about it, it feels like a blast to the face, even Mm -hmm. though, you know, it's all past, but, um, and I think I made my first like 
short film that year just because I started to become very, very passionate and serious about it. It's also the year that the AFI released the top 100 films. Mm -hmm. So everyone was kind of thinking about that and talking about film lists for the first time. Now we live in film list culture, but uh, I think it was one of the first times people were really thinking about that in, in, in terms of popular culture, entertainment weekly, things like that kind of still right before the internet takes off. And, uh, but I think it's also a fishbowl mindset because I didn't know anyone who pursued a career related to anything to do with movies. So when I went to college, I thought I would be a high school teacher. I got a degree in history and realized really quickly I didn't want to do that when I started teaching after college. Mostly, I think, on a disciplinarian aspect. I, didn't, I, I couldn't imagine spending the rest of my life telling young people not to talk. I think was the main thing. It just pushed too many buttons. And uh, so then I started a video production company on the side. And I, I taught high school for two years, even though it's probably the job that made me unhappiest most that I've had in my life. And uh, started a production company. And that kind of segued into, you know, from wedding videos into concerts, into documentaries, into some gigs in the TV industry. And you know, just chasing that down. And that was going pretty well until I just kind of realized I wasn't happy kind of working in the film industry either um, for a variety of reasons. And what I was actually doing for fun as an adult was, you know, studying movies. I had a big stack of film history books and film analysis books on my bedside table. And that was what I would do for fun. And it kind of came late in life, about 27, 28, in terms of going to college. Uh, at least it felt like that at the time. Um, when I realized, you know, I loved teaching. I just hated teaching high school. Sure. And I loved movies, but even more than making movies, I loved analysis. I loved thinking about them, talking about them, the discussion about them, uh, and and then if I got to you know if I could go back to school and, and teach at a college level, it would be a I, I would just wonder why someone would pay me to do that, <laughs> which is is the lovely thing now. So yeah, that that's kind of the journey to to a career related to cinema. But I think from high school there was a part of me that kind of knew something in my life would career wise would be related to it. It was just too deep inside. Sure, and it is one of those strange career paths, right? I remember my first instinct was like, yeah, I'm going to do something film production related. I'm going to be a screenwriter. And then when I found out how difficult it was to make movies, I remember watching the uh, the documentary on the Magnolia disc and watching Paul Thomas Anderson yeah. have to direct child actors. And I was like, yeah. I no, I can't do this. Like, There's no way. You need to work with so many other people, and I'm kind of more of a lone wolf, so... I uh, thought I was going to do film criticism and did that for a while, and then it became this weird thing where I remember taking that first college class, and I was like, "How'd you get this job? Like, what, what'd you what'd you do here? What, yeah. what do I need to do to do what you do?" And uh, it was maybe freshman or sophomore year that I figured it out, and I was like, "I'm I'm going to do this." And Nicole, my wife, who of course you know, but right, she she jokes about one of our first dates. She's like, "What do you want to do when you're done?" I'm like, "I'm going to be a film professor," and she's like, "Sure you are." And, uh, you know, it's just one of those weird, it is one of those weird paths that people just kind of happen upon. And you see it too. I mean, I, I teach classes and then I have students come up not infrequently at the end of a semester mm -hmm. saying, man, you know, 
this really changed my focus. I want to do something in cinema. What should I do? And it's that's a real question to, to be confronted with because there aren't clean paths. There aren't easy paths, I think, in any particular direction if it's something you're really passionate about. And uh, it's not easy to make it it's not easy to become, you know, a professor, but it's it's probably even less easy to become a filmmaker, at least a profitable one. Uh, at the same point, like I appreciate every everything that I did. I love walking into teaching cinema, knowing pretty, you know, close to uh, knowing pretty close, pretty intimately how films are actually made. Mm-hmm. I think that was something that I discovered when I got to graduate school how how many graduate students really had very little idea what went into the making of a film and um and i think that you know you use every tool i i still love the creative act the creative process and you and i you know still dive into things like video essays for example which kind of bridge the worlds between film analysis and uh, filmmaking to a certain degree, to a certain degree, a limited degree. But, uh, yeah, I get, I get anxious. I, I think I've always just been a little bit restless in general. When I, when I'm thinking too much about films, I want to make something when I've made something then I want to think sure. more about cinema. So it, it kind of, uh, and I've been lucky in that way to be able to do it all. So, but I, I think you're, you're on the right track though, too, when you say that making also informs the way that you analyze them. I mean, um, ever since I've started taking photos, right, I, I, I knew lenses in general, but now it's like immediately when I see a shot, I can almost tell what the, the focal length on that lens was, which was never yeah. something I could really do. I could tell when it was telephoto or when it was wide, but to get more of like a sense of like, I'm looking at convergence lines and artifacts in the lens, and it's one of those things that I never ever would have thought about until I actually had to think about making the compositions myself. Well, and I think it's something that some filmmakers still know almost nothing about. Like there are still <laughs> that's true <laughs> directors who will fess up to knowing almost nothing about lenses, nothing about uh, much of the craft of filmmaking that they delegate out. I mean, uh, I, we I just read a, a story about this film that's going to be coming out this year by Alfonso Caron, one of the the great uh, directors of this age, I think, and. Um, not always great films, but sometimes great movies. And his new film, Roma, I mean, I didn't know that he had not just directed it, which he always does, but he had wrote it and shot it himself. He was his own cinematographer and edited it. I mean, Steven Soderbergh somewhere going like, yeah, you know, great dude. Well done. <laughs> well, they're they're buddies. I'm, I'm sure he's okay no, with no, that. No, I know, I know. But he, Soderbergh's been doing that for so sure. many years. But, but uh so many directors would never be able to do that, I think would be my, my bigger point. And, uh, uh, but the ones that I think cinephiles usually find themselves attracted to do know those crafts, do know those issues, and are thinking about them when they're not just you know, in production on a film, but when they're in the construction of a movie even before it reaches you know, the filmmaking process. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's start talking a little bit about Grease, a film that I hadn't seen until about two weeks ago and that you had watched for the first time about a year ago. So it's fairly recent for both of us. Um, 
I think for a long time in both our lives. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was one of those movies where I I've talked about this on other episodes. I just from being in pit orchestra and playing in musicals for so long, I have a prejudice against musicals and Grease, I just I never got into that whole 50s retro fad. I mean, now, I, obviously, I'm not old enough to have gone to school during that time, but it was just ne- the music never appealed to me. I was more of like, a, I liked the 60s more. So when I was a kid, I listened to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. I never had a, a craving for that kind of 50s aesthetic and the cars. It just it was completely foreign to me, and I thought it was kind of wholesome and tacky. Um, but I found out from watching Grease that that was a bit, presumptuous on my part that there were things going on in the 50s that were far more interesting uh, than maybe I would have assumed so what I'm going to do at this point is I'm going to briefly summarize the movie insofar that it needs a summary I'll mention some actors names some character names so obviously there's going to be some spoilers so if you haven't seen Greece I don't know why you'd be listening to this if you haven't um, but if you care about spoilers um, now is the time to tune out Um, So Grease, made in 78 by Randall Kleiser, follows Danny, played by John Travolta in one of his early film roles after Welcome Back, Cotter, and just either, it was immediately after Saturday Night Fever, right around the time they were shooting. Right after. Yeah. Um, Danny um, Zuko, uh, Travolta, plays this young kind of greaser type in high school, too cool for school, but we don't quite know that in the first couple scenes. We see him at the beach with Sandy, Olivia Newton-John. They're kind of frolicking on the beach in this beautifully silhouetted as one, shot. As one does, Drew. <laughs> as, as one does, evidently, yeah. To me, it, it was it was a very... I, don't know, I mean, in some ways, it makes perfect sense for being a high school romance movie, right? I'm, I have no sense of what actually connects these two people, um, but we can get to that in a little bit. Um, yeah. But they have a summer romance on the beach. She says she's going away and will never see him again. Uh, they have a, a, a kind of loving goodbye, uh, and then it cuts to the first day of school, and everyone's rolling in, and we have Danny um, coming in to, coming into school with his buddy uh, Kanicki, I think it is, uh, Jeff Conway's character. Um, Kanicki, you got to get your hickey from Kanicki. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you got to get your hickey from Kanicki. So there's the yeah. boys' club, and then you have the girls' club uh, that has Rizzo, uh, Stockard Channing, uh, Frenchie, Didi, Khan, and and some of the other supporting characters who are there enough to be noticed, but also don't get much to do, so they kind of blend together in my mind. Um, but once the first day of school begins, um, the girls find Sandy there, and Sandy doesn't know Danny goes to the school that they're at, and eventually she runs into Danny, who at a very inopportune time pretends that he doesn't really know who she is and pretends to be a different person and kind of pushes her away in this um, very macho overreaction, right? There's like two sides mm-hmm. to him. He's like two-faced guy in the scene where he's both like, Sandy, it's so great to see you, but I can't let my feelings out because I'm a man. And so I'm going to push Absolutely. you to the side. Um, and so the rest of the film is really this kind of Will they or won't they get together? She starts dating um, one of the football players. She becomes a cheerleader. He starts trying out for track to try to win her back. Um, Kaniki hooks up with Rizzo, and there's a pregnancy scare. Um, but in general, it's a very 
simple plot in which there's a there's a car that's involved that's renovated and there's a race at the end with this, <laughs> super simple plot yeah yeah with this rival clan but it's 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 more episodic there's not really an overarching narrative other than Danny and Sandy and will they get together or not um, can you think of anything I may have missed no I, I I think that the plot you know the will they won't they uh, through a series you know a romantic comedy plot uh, uh, and uh, uh, will they kind of resolve uh, their love story through a series of, you know, constant misunderstandings and mishaps that keep driving them away until they decide they love each other by the end? I mean, it, I think it's the thinnest of, of, of plots to hang really a bunch of set pieces on. And yeah. obviously musicals are that. But beyond just hanging musical sequences, it's also trying to hang, I think, uh, a series of 1950s kind of tropes on there we get an american bandstand dance off sequence we get the the drag race sequence a kind of a la you know rebel without a cause drag drag race sequence in there for i i think suspicious reasons why it's present in in, in the film at all um uh some high school hijinks and and football rallies that look very Nuremberg-esque, I think, in the way that they're shot. Um, yeah, I, I I think it's it's a film that's less about the characters and the plot and more about, I mean, the fifties sure. and uh, and I think a viewing of the fifties through a kind of post sexual revolution lens of the 70s which i think is some of the most interesting things about the film but we can dive into that well that that, that was going to be my next question why do you why do you think this film is canonized and i think you're heading in the right direction or at least the direction i thought i was going to go in so please go ahead why do you why do you think greece is an important musical why is it so beloved it just had its 40th anniversary and when i went to a screening at the academy people were lined up down the street it was wild it was the wildest of the summer screenings that they put on and people were going and the cast was there yeah and they, the cast was there and people were going batshit but in a way that like none of the other movies of the summer which were all anniversary screenings had brought it no one, none of the films had brought out the people like this one did yeah and so for me i was kind of like i knew greece was appreciated and loved but i didn't yeah. know to this extent and uh so what what makes you feel like greece and watching it at the ripe age of mid-30s somewhere <laughs> wherever you reside uh for the first time especially when you probably heard many of the tunes already as as i had i mean sure when i saw it for the first time last year i already knew half the tunes um it must have been a very interesting experience for you. Um, I think the tunes are, are are somewhat central to to why it's it's been canonized. I don't think it takes much, in my opinion, for a musical to kind of become classic. I think it has to have uh, a, a generally kind of interesting plot with interesting characters, which I think Greece has. Uh, the will they won't they high school love romance is still a meditation of the cinema. Um, I, I think that uh, really a musical needs to to have some interesting characters, and really three maybe two or three good songs, mm-hmm. and most people will kind of remember it fondly. I think Greece has far more than that. I think that that there are many songs in this film that could be considered like musical classics. Um, I think there's at least three really great ones and likely, you know, more that are just fun. What um, would be your, what would be your three? 
Uh, definitely, uh, you're the one that I want, which was not in the original musical. It's it's it was, it was made for the film. the film. I think Summer Love, Lovin' is is fantastic, and that was in the original musical. I, I believe the original musical opens with them arriving at high school. It doesn't have them frolicking on the beach uh, in in the original musical. Um, uh, Greased Lightning is is a lot of fun. Um, there are certain aspects of, of Sandy that that are are fun as a and hopelessly devoted that are that are definitely fun. I think Rizzo's song is is fantastic, and Stalker Channing is mm. is really really great in that sequence. Um, and uh, uh, we'll always be together. The the closing tune. Um, yeah, music in in the film. Did you in, enjoy? Huh. I, I went like completely the other way on some of them. Okay. So like I like the I like the Barry Gibbs song for some reason because I I just like the uh, the Bee Gees. So like to me it's just it's kind of oh, it's well, it's and the opening. Yeah, yeah. The, that's a the, catchy which song. Which was also not in the musical. They they created it for the opening sequence. I think that's great too. And it's odd too because it's kind of a seventies funk tune sure. to a certain degree. Yeah. And I think that's why I like it. I just like that kind of era and sound of music more than the fifties one. That being said. There's something about um, beauty school dropout to me, like that that right. whole num- just because it's so funny and Frankie Avalon is Great. just so fantastic in that it, it's it's a funny song and it completely kind of changes the tone of the film. The rest of them are kind of semi serious or you know like Sandy or there are worse things I could do for you or just kind of you know you know, love songs, which are kind of straightforward, but that one is just so funny and the lyrics are so sharp and cutting that I was just, I was kind of on the floor after that one. You think it's, it's different in tone than the rest of the film? Because I agree that, that, that what makes that sequence so special is just how cutting and and commentary filled it is. But I mean, and maybe this is where, you know, we should decide, you know, you and I should venture forth in in terms of what we thought of the film, but you know, did you, did you? I, I I took the film as a kind of gentle satire. I'm not sure that the original musical was necessarily intended that way as as much as the film. But I think there's something about the film that, you know, oh it's, no, it's it, it that is very very you know uh, I thought subversive and sharp commentary on high school high school culture, but also kind of films about high school and films about that kind of culture, but. Definitely, like you know, uh, yeah, that song with with uh, uh, beauty school dropout yeah. is is hilarious in terms of its its commentary on on the era. I completely agree that I feel like the film is critiquing and kind of taking all of these '50s stereotypes and updating them and being like, no, they're horny like we are, and yes, they're having sex in the yeah. back of cars, and yes, they're drinking, and yes, they're violent, right? So it's 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 taking, you know, all of these 50s stereotypes and kind of challenging them and acknowledging what was really going on. Um, but I think most of the the kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge tone tends to come in the dramatic scenes, if we want to call okay. them dramatic scenes. Uh, it doesn't come in the form of the music. I don't think most of the songs, um, if I sat and read all of the, the lyrics, have that kind of self-awareness that beauty school dropout has. I certainly agree that the rest of the film does, but the rest of the the songs in the film seem more sincere than that to me, I okay. guess, is what I would say. And, and I, ge- go I guess 
No, you go ahead. Finish. I was going to say, I think that's what I ultimately appreciated about Greece overall was, again, this kind of – it's having its cake and eating it too. It's critiquing Definitely. gender stereotypes um, to a to a certain degree, right, where Travolta is I, – I love how it's kind of playing with the idea that gender is performative and he's being ridiculous and, you know, that's that's great. Its critique of masculinity is fantastic, but at the same time – making Sandy um, essentially whore it up at the end. Um, she needs to put on, you know, leather pants and redo her hair and hook up with the beauty school dropout and, you know, dress differently and become a floozy in order to win um, Danny's heart really distresses me where it's like, he's the one who's already changed. Why can't that be enough for the narrative to kind of unite them? He's learn to track i know it's the 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 flimsiest of options of finding a common ground between them but yeah it's it's distressing that it becomes kind of retrograde at the end for me where she has to become this other thing the change for your man critique yeah and it's the endless critique of the film and it's a critique that i already was aware of before Mm -hmm. i even saw the movie i think let's just save that for the end because i think that'll be a, a kind of central issue for for discussion I, I disagree, however, that I think that the, the songs themselves are, are lacking in in self-awareness and critique. I think, for example, just like, you know, Sandy, for example, which was also a song that was designed for the film, uh, is, 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 t- was to me like an obvious commentary on the, the girls' names. Well, not just that, the girls, the girl name songs of the 1950s, the Donnas of the mm-hmm. 1950s, the film's the songs that were constantly about a girl's name at the time. And there's a lot of fun things going on in the background to that song that were purposely designed from, from what I've read subsequently, for example, you know, he's got the, the, the concession stand stuff playing in the background. And right as the song crescendos and ends, the hot dog jumps into the bun and (laughs) uh, they timed it that way so that it would, you know, it's because the song is about this, this, greaser guy who's you know pining over this girl but really at at the heart of it he's a horny teenager he wants to get laid he's a horny teenager looks like a horny 30 year old but they all do (laughs) but but i mean that's kind of the commentary and i think the one that kind of sets that up the most is the the first i think great song in the film summer loving which I think sets up also the main theme of the film, which is the difference in perception between men and women. And I think that, and particularly in terms Mm. of performative gendered stereotypes, you have two accounts of the same thing being performed to one by a, a girl to a group of girls, the other by a boy to a group of boys. And they're being performed in a way to cater to those audiences and they're being interpreted through a gendered sure. lens each time. And the way, you know, boys and girls see things and relate to each other, I think is at the heart of the film. I mean, so much of the movie, which I found very interesting, you know, I think it starts to kind of fall flat the moment boys and girls start interacting with each other, but I think it really finds its legs in those scenes where girls are talking amongst themselves and the boys are talking amongst themselves and where uh they're they're working through issues of of performance. I mean, I think that's what makes to me the most interesting character in the film, the stalker Channing Rizzo character. Sure. 
who gets to shine with her song. Um, I, I, I think that that is what makes her so interesting because, and what also I think slightly dilutes the edge of the the Sandy makeover at the end because she's really the one that gets to express in her song the the feeling of the confinement of gender stereotypes for women in that time and that she's supposed to pine and save herself for the right guy and she's not supposed to be bad and she's not supposed to flirt and she's not supposed to uh you know what what they want from her is a bunch of flirtation and teasing without any kind of compromising of her virtue and hopefully Mr. Wright will come along and hopefully it will all work out. And if not, well, there's also old widowhood, you know, or, huh. or spinsterhood in her case, you know, so, uh, and she's just going to have none of it. You know, she's just like, fuck that to that option of life. And, you know, which I, I think is beyond the fact that she's fantastic in the role and she's great. Sure. Um, I, I, I see as, as some of the more interesting stuff that, that, the film is exploring. I agree that I think it's having its both ways because summer love and on its face is just a frothy, fun song. It's a fun little doo-wop tune, but Mm -hmm. I think it also underneath that is setting up all the themes of the film. Yeah. I think I probably overstated it when you were describing Sandy for some reason. Initially I was thinking of it as the song that the girls are singing about Sandy. Look at me. I'm Sandra D. And I was like, yeah, but as soon as you described the hot dog going into the bun, I was like, Nope, you're right. There, there are, there's like I think it's like every five songs in there there's one that's kind of subversive and weird and and kind of satirical of 50s tropes so yeah no I could definitely see what you're saying um I also think the reason it's it's so canonized and well regarded is just because the cast is so great I yeah, mean it, it great. really is it's a and, great cast. yeah and John Travolta is just he's charming and his timing is fantastic and sexy like, as hell yeah, I mean, yeah. he's just really really great and, and Channing and, and even Dee Dee Khan is Frenchy you know it's it's got wonderful and and some of the folks I thought who had were like the unsung MVPs were like Eve Arden as the the principal from um she was in uh Mildred Pierce she was Ida so she's yeah. kind of this character actor from classical Hollywood and you had Sid Caesar and uh what Love is it, it? Dodie Goodman from like '50s television playing the uh, the secretary and the football coach who have like this very different sense of timing and must have made that that audience who was you know in their 40s and going to see this and had graduated in you know 1956 right. um, feel like yeah you know feel like this weird almost like meta level like we were watching this guy on TV at the time and now he's playing you know the football coach. Yeah, and I. I rewatched the film last night in, in preparation for this because it was a year ago that I'd seen it, and that was the first time I'd seen it all the way through. And uh, I forgot how much the teachers and the faculty are in it and how and, and the roles that they play and, and how much time it gives to their experience of the high school year as well, <laughs> where they're counting down the days till Christmas break as well, which every high school teacher, I can promise you, can sure. relate to. And, you know the coach and, and the pep rallies. But I mean, that to me is like the whole commentary about high school culture. You know, you got this 
utterly failing team and this inept, you know, limp noodle coach who's trying to get things going. And, uh, and, and the whole school turns out with a bonfire burning kind of Nuremberg rally-esque kill the other side, you know, death to the other side, you know, rally where they're rallying for their school, even though their school is pretty pathetic in the sporting (laughs) events. I mean, I thought that was absolutely hilarious. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, what was I going to say on that on that front? Oh, it, to me it was interesting too in terms of what adults get attention, right? So it's never like right. the parents. We never see the parents of any of these characters. You're right. But we yeah. see like the school teachers get their, you know, get their moment and they're not viewed as being, you know, stuffy old people, right? They're kind of viewed as being like this is a job and it's a pain in the ass dealing with these kids. And I, isn't one of them drinking at one point? Like doesn't she have a flask in her desk? There's the, some the that are drinking. I think yeah. there's some at the dance that are trying to dance with the teenagers. There's also a weird kind of like uh, uh, the announcer is the horny old the teen- Dick Clark <laughs> yeah. type guy. Yeah. Um, so there's some some weirdness there. Yeah, yeah. But you also have like that I, the woman who's the uh, the waitress at the diner who's trying to talk yep. to Frenchie and give her like life advice. Which is great. Um, yeah, yeah, no, it's this great moment, but yeah, it's it's a very strange movie where, like, by the end of it, I think there's a, a line where, um, the, she's the mechanic teacher, I think, right? Isn't it the woman who teaches the, like the the class and helping them redo the car because you know she's like rooting for him at the race? There's that weird moment right. where she comes out with the gas can and stuff. And the the kids say something along the lines of like, "Yeah, this car is entirely made out of like stolen parts." And I'm just like imagining <laughs> what this town looks like. I'm like, so these kids are just like tearing shit up all week, like stealing shit out of cars, and like parents are nowhere to be found. I'm just like trying exactly. to imagine what this town is. It it makes more sense that that the original play was set in Chicago, where the guys who wrote it. Uh, it's an interesting story about about the the musical itself because these guys wrote this musical. They were raised in Chicago, kind of tougher neighborhoods. They basically knew every person that you kind of see in this film. They were all based on people from their high school experience, and and uh, they were kind of reaching the end of the '60s, and they're like, "We're done with the weird experience." You know, it's like I know everyone. There's always some guy in the corner strumming a guitar and playing Bob Dylan tunes, but then they would take the guitar and start singing like '50s rock tunes, and everyone kind of was enjoying that more and they're like let's do a a kind of 50s rock musical and and also kind of do a kind of tougher version of the 50s at the same time that celebrates it and so it's an interesting component it's also interesting that uh i mean i'd be interested to see the original musical which i hear is a little bit rougher a little bit harsher much more sexual and much more explicit in that in that way because i think the film, when it was kind of converted and a little bit more candy-coated, even though there is some roughness in there, like these guys are definitely like thieves and and punks to a certain extent. And uh, and it's about kind of teenage sex and sexuality and, and all of that. Uh, I, I think it creates a kind of glossy, uh, at the same point, a kind of glossy feel to the film that, once again, kind of separates an audience from it. I, you know they're great actors. They're, they're very compelling. I don't really care about Danny Zuko as a person. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested all that much in Danny Zuko and his struggles. And I don't think the film wants me to be, I, I think it's much more, I, I'm, I'm much more outside of the story and, and kind of thinking about 
the idea of like the fifties, the idea of high school, the idea of these particular group of truthfully like working class guys who are going to have working class jobs and, and, and marry women and they're never going to really advance in their careers. And, and I'm not sure, you know, uh, why for some reason setting it in California where everyone seems to be from the East Coast, everyone talks with an East Coast accent, but they're all underneath the palm trees of California. I'm not sure why that that feels kind of correct to me as a kind of Hollywood interpretation, but I don't know. It just kind of creates an extra layer of separation that that I think makes the film more interesting to think about. What do you think? Because I mean, it's hard for me to think of Greece um, and not think of it in this context of. 50s and early 60s nostalgia movies that we get in the 70s right so why what do you think brings that about because i I don't feel like we've really seen that recently for you know um it's not like in the 90s we had a whole lot of movies made about the 70s i'm trying to think of like we had dazed and confused confused. maybe one but it didn't seem as rampant as it did in the 70s with, like, 50s culture, right? These yeah. these things come back in, like, little pockets where, like, an old album I, will be sampled I or know. something. But And I just saw a trailer for Jonah Hill's mid-90s mm. the other day. Have you seen the trailer for that yet? Is that the one about the skateboarding kid? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't realize it was set in the mid-90s based the, on the trailer the title I saw. Of the film is mid-90s. Oh, is, it, is that what it's called? I just, <laughs> I just, I saw the trailer. I was like, okay, this looks interesting. I kind of zoned out because I saw it like 15 times at the landmark. Yeah, yeah, I know. They played it forever. Um, yeah, I mean, I think every 20 years people become nostalgic because when, you know, the the people who were kids, you know, uh, are, are grown up and thinking about their childhood and, and kind of, you know, the... <laughs> People grow up, their hearts break, <laughs> and they, they pine for the past, as uh, as John Hughes promised would happen. Um, but uh, I think I think the seventies, kind of reflecting on the fifties, was a. I, I, I think it, you know some of the reasons are a little bit obvious because the sixties were such a traumatic turning point in American society. I think that everything changed. You know, we're still reeling from the aftermath of the societal changes that happened in the 60s in terms of, you know, everything from civil rights to women's liberation to sexual revolution to the hippie movement to the rock movement to the music scene to the anti-war protests when all of a sudden, you know, you weren't cool if you were a part of the establishment, which had never really been the case before. And I think the whole reorientation towards youth culture, which was happening in the 1950s, which I think is an interesting thing to think about in and of itself. I mean, in the history of civilization, popular culture for the vast, you know, history of society, of of human society, was adult culture. Popular culture was adult-oriented. You know, after the war in the United States and the disposable income and the baby boom that's happening— and the influx of, of subsidized government marketing dollars and all these historical reasons for supporting marketing firms, you know, this this shift in focus happens kind of for the first time in human society where everyone's looking to young people for the first time and, and young people are setting the trend for popular culture and, uh, and, you know, young people are going to see bands that are full of young people themselves. They're seeing people their own age 
sing the popular tunes of that day, which I think was also kind of a first to a certain degree. So I think that I think that it, you know the '50s itself was a real palpable change in in American culture. We still think about it. We still kind of mythologize, either mythologize it or try to demythologize it in in the modern day in our entertainment. And and then the '60s was such a a shock to the system in society for for good and ill and, and for a lot of good, but. Uh, mostly good, in my opinion. But the the I think that by the seventies, people people were definitely willing to 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 look back at their childhoods and and kind of miss what what had once been to a certain degree. And I think that's also one of the reasons why the fifties kind of becomes a focal point of this whole kind of nostalgia for an America of an older time when people really are thinking of like the good old days in America. Sure. I think a subtext to that is constantly the fifties. And even though we all you know, know it that, was only, yeah. Good, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was fantastic. If you were white and living in suburbia, you know, it was very much decidedly not that if you were part of the groups of people who were redlined out of those districts and legally not even allowed to live there. So anyhow, yeah, but that makes that makes me think too about like what the audience for Greece might have looked like, considering it was such a success. I think it was the top-grossing film of '78, right? So it's not yeah. just nostalgic adults who are going to see this who are in their 40s. It must have been young people, and it's like that's kind of a big ask. Like I, I think today, like if you made mid '90s, right? If you made this movie, my students would be like, "I'm not going to see that." Like there's nothing, there's nothing to appeal for them aside, you know. Don't don't get me wrong. I think John Travolta got people in the door because of things like Welcome Back, Cotter, and his TV persona, and probably Olivia Newton-John to a certain extent. Maybe oh, there's a Barry Gibbs song on the soundtrack, but it's it is a weird ask to expect kids to like. You're gonna you're gonna like this movie, yeah this this movie with songs that are 25 years old in it. You know, I think it was a perfect confluence of events that brought about Greece. I think that one you had a musical that was reflecting on the 50s and it already had good tunes in it and people were kind of ready in the in the 70s to start doing that it was also the rise of more positive upbeat cinema uh in from the mid 50 from the mid 70s on the kind of dying out of new hollywood and the replacement of it with blockbuster culture i think you know the other popular films of the late 70s like obviously star wars but also superman sure. things like that at the same point it was also, you know, it fit into a kind of new Hollywood model to a certain degree because it, it's also very, uh, I think, much more adult and much more adult-centered. And it definitely is looking at the 50s through the lens of a generation that just passed through uh, a much more frank uh, sexual revolution that is discussing sexuality that, that had never been present in 50s cinema up to that point. You also have the movie stars. You also have the addition of other songs that are popular. You have this kind of upbeat vibe to a film that I think is actually kind of dark and subversive in a lot of very specific ways. I think it's kind of, you know, if you want to see the dark commentary, it's there for those people. If you want to see just a light pop kind of entertainment, it's definitely there. If you want to see beautiful people with real dancing moves and good voices doing, you know, fun tunes, 
it's all there. And I think it just hit at the, it's one of those perfect kind of, uh, perfect storms of, of sure. late seventies entertainment for the right people came together. Oddly enough for this director who I was looking up, uh, Randall Kleiser. Randall yeah. Have you seen his filmography? I looked at it when I saw the film a couple weeks ago, but I can't remember what else he did off the top of my head. Let me see. He's kind of this. I'm looking at. Oh, his honey, I blew up now. the kid. That's right. And flight of the of navigator this and guy, Vic. yeah, who who all of a sudden, like when you look back at the '80s and '90s, like is popping up in, in interesting ways. You know, like like this kind of. Uh, I don't know. Uh, this this guy who who's present in like he did Blue Lagoon and then he did Flight of the Navigator and he did a Pee Wee movie and he did Honey I Blew Up the Kid. It's just so interesting that he's just like, you know. And here's another Randall Kleiser film all of a sudden. You know? But it's also not you know like none of those have much in common with the oh. the kind of aesthetic of Greece. I mean, in certain ways, I I know Big Top Pee Wee's making fun of like. From what I remember, it's been a long time, but there's like that kind of like he's on a farm and it's kind of poking fun of like wholesomeness because I just remember there's a scene of him eating like an egg salad sandwich and he's obsessed with it. And, you know, there's this, but like it's yeah, none of them really capture anything tonally or aesthetically like Grease does. I mean, those Honey, I Shrunk the Kid movies are... <laughs> Yeah. I'm not sure he, he would be a model of auteur. Yeah, no, I don't either. It's, I'm just, I'm, yeah, wow. But I think I think that the kind of uh, candy coat layer that he adds on to what I think was meant to be fun but slightly darker material is kind of also what uh, shines in the film for a certain audience when when they look back on it. I think the pe- the reason people turned out in droves is because you know, it was a fun film then. It's still a fun film, and it's that it's that issue of people grew up with it. It hit right before home video, so it was one of the biggest sellers on home video in the 1980s. I think it was a perennial kind of watch for a, a certain generation. That I'm not sure it's going to be the same. I'm not sure it's gonna it's going to be the the same 20 years from now, but it might be. I mean, it's it's still a fun a fun film, and looking back at an earlier generation in a similar way to the way singing in the rain was looking back 20 years uh in the 1950s on a on a era that had just passed by and is kind of making sly commentary about it not to put them on the same you know sure, level yeah. but yeah um yeah no so we never really got to this question did you did you like greece what did you th- what did you think of greece i thought it was great truthfully um I, I really like it. I'm I like musicals though, and I'd be interested about your prejudice against them. I don't know why you hate them, Drew, but um, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I I had a blast. The first time I saw it was at the cemetery screening. Everyone was in the right mindset and the right vibe. Um, I I think that I think that you can watch it and just enjoy the music. I think that you can watch it and. Think about the commentary it's offering on gender roles, on uh, working class, 1950s kind of greaser culture. I think that you can think about high school experience. I think that you can laugh at the movie a little bit. I mean, some of those people, I mean, like the competing uh, guy on the 
the the guy that they're drag racing against yeah. he's got that other gang I, I, I if I could do hand quotes you know of of uh, of greaser types I mean that guy looks like he's pushing 50 I'm, I'm sure he was like yeah his 30s and just a chain smoker but um, so I mean there's certain aspects of that you can laugh at but you know it's it's also I think a all those things are fun in and of itself. I also think it's a time capsule of the 1970s, even though it's a film about the 50s. It's really about the 70s looking back at the 50s, and I think that's mm -hmm. interesting to think about as well. I think all of those things more than make for an interesting watch and a film I, I will definitely put into my cycle of rotation and rewatch over the years to come, definitely. I, I enjoyed it more than I thought I was going to. I didn't realize it was going to be quite that subversive, so it's it's funny. I procrastinated quite a bit on Grease and Saturday Night Fever because I thought mm. also thought Saturday Night Fever. I was like, man, it's a musical. I like the music. That's a pretty dark movie. It's yeah, it's a it's a dark movie. So part of me um, was kind of happily surprised by the fact that both of them were more. Um, critical and conscientious of you know darker mm -hmm. things at play, um, so I did appreciate that about Greece. The, the ending bothered me, and it's hard not to. But you it's know, hard not to feel bothered by the ending. Yeah, and and to me, it's like it's interesting because the, the other movie that has really, and I know it's not a contest and it's apples and oranges, but the other movie that's really improved for me over the last couple rewatches is like American Graffiti. So for me. I look at American Graffiti, which I, I know it's 62, but it's close enough, and they kind of have uh, a lot of similarities in terms of, you know, let's focus on high school culture at this one definitive moment in time. 72, right? 72? That's when it came out, but it's set in 62. Oh, right, 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 yeah. right, 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 right. You're right. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's all right. Um, so for me, it's more like like if it's between those two, I, I find the – the pessimism of American Graffiti, the aesthetic of American Graffiti, the performances of it. I, I, I would just, I'd reach for American Graffiti any day. I wanted some, like, nostalgia kick from the 70s about, you know, high school 15 years I before. definitely agree with you about American Graffiti. I, I, I think it's a film that kind of went over my head when I saw it in high school. Yeah. And as to its classic status and has definitely aged incredibly well to me. Um, and... I think truthfully has many of the attributes that make Greece an interesting film because I think a lot of people love it for very kind of superficial reasons. It's got a great soundtrack. Sure. It's kind of this glossy, nostalgic small town America in the Modesto setting. I think, you know, it's got these young, attractive actors. I think a lot of people that's enough for them, but that's also like Greece. I think a very sly and dark commentary on its time. And has a, a, as you said, very correctly, a real pessimism to the era that they're leaving and entering into. And uh, yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that completely. I, yeah, the ending of Greece is 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 a question mark. I, there's part of me that that resists just kind of purely slamming it because I find it hard to take any of the characters kind of seriously in terms of the decisions that they make. Anyways, sure. um, I also find the kind of uh, uh, the what the the roles you know that the the film presents the basically the 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 classic Madonna whore complex that it kind of sets up and says like 
you're either this or you're that, you know, uh, as slightly problematic too, in terms of judging her decision at the end, if we were to take her decision seriously, because, you know, did we really want her to stay a goody two shoes and become, you know, an adoring, unhappy, medicated housewife later on by the time she reaches the 60s no it's you know, not it's not solution. that and i yeah i didn't mean to judge her for you know come off as judging her oh, I decision didn't, I didn't okay i just i just was i think that the film sets up that dynamic and and what it feels like is that she's changing for him yeah i i i think in the 1970s people weren't thinking in very nuanced ways about the options which i say but and yet the stalker channing character kind of represents someone who I think is ahead of her time in the yeah. idea of thinking about the idea of like, why do I have to be branded a whore for wanting to flirt with boys and wanting to be with men and wanting to, to, to have sexual experiences and wanting to live now and not have to like, you know, wait for Prince Charming who, you know, Hey, I've never seen it happen for anyone else. Why is it going to happen for me? You know, I, I think that the film is thoughtful on that level I don't think it gives enough room for the thoughtfulness with the Sandy character, which is why we feel a little bit jarred by, by the decision. Yeah. Even though the, it it's somewhat, you know, they, they're trying to smooth it over with, with such a great tune. I, I think one of the only sincere tunes in the film, w- lacking in commentary, the, the, the one the one that I want, the song. Yeah, and, and that might be the other issue I have with it, is at the end of the film, it kind of throws away a lot of the self-awareness it had, a lot of the edge it has, right? The song is sincere, almost corny. And then that last shot of them getting in the car and driving off into the sky. Actually, I was going to say, like, that's where I think the commentary comes back. I think the one that you're, you're the one that I want is probably the most sincere song in the film. I think it's also one of the best songs in the film, so I'm not sliding it for its sincerity, but, uh, the moment like they start singing we'll always be together like no you won't like they're flying off into the sky it's like a dream fantasy like this was high school guys you're not always going to be together at all (laughs) like you're destined for for probably not great paying jobs and probably not happy careers and probably less happy family lives i mean like you know this is where it's all headed as we sing in our in our in our, you know, fifties Chevy into the soaring into the sky into a kind of la la dreamland. I, I felt the, sh- you know, I, I suppose some people could take that seriously, and maybe it was meant seriously. I thought it was like pure satire. Huh? Yeah. No. I I read it. I read it straight just because I think of the the song as not having uh, the the edgy lyrics of the earlier ones. Again, I. I think it's this weird moment where it's like, do I use the context of what came before this to read completely against the grain of what I'm seeing? Or do I just like read this? Because I, it almost feels like it becomes a different movie from that moment that Danny becomes the jock and comes out in the Letterman coat. And he's like, oh, I earned this, right? And I'm like, <laughs> what the hell is going on? Like, we're, we're coming back to that? Like, it's, it's, right. just, it's this weird pivot at that moment and then she comes out and it just it never seems to really pause and think about the ramifications of anything that's happened and like I guess these are some major character developments in like the last 30 seconds of the movie and then it's riding off into the sky and it's like I just I compare that to the end of American Graffiti where it's like they graduate and then you get this this text at the end where the it's right after he uh Right. says goodbye and flies away to go to college and the other guy hooks up with the blonde 
where you get the text and it's like, nope, so-and-so died and was killed by a drunk driver, so-and-so went to Vietnam and never came back, and one of them had an okay life, right? So, yeah, for me, it's just like, I, I, I look at Greece and at the end of it becomes this anic- antidote to American graffiti. Whereas, I, I, I guess it could be taken that way the first time I saw it, and then yesterday when I saw it, I, I, I thought the same thing both times, like, that's hilarious. That's <laughs> absolutely that's absolutely hilarious. That's them basically, you know, saying what they do in American graffiti. They just don't say it straight. They say it uh, you know, in reverse. They're being ironic. They're 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 saying one thing but they mean something else completely. Sure. You know, the the whole idea of a, of a closing of a high school musical uh, with this idea with the song literally with the lyrics will always be together. No, you won't. Like, like that's <laughs> and thank God. I, but... I'll have to watch it again. But it was like leaving that movie theater after they're the the 40th anniversary the screening. I don't think that many people read it ironically. But I, I get what you're saying. I think I think there's a possibility to do it. I, I definitely can and can see what you're saying. But I don't know how many people actually do. Um... And I think I think that irony is 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 in. I don't think it's just out of the blue in that sequence. I think it's no. present. I think it's present in, in the rest of the film. I think I, again, I think it's present in the rest and, of the film, but I think it. once it's the last day of school, it like kind of loses the the self-awareness that the, the rest of the movie has. I don't know. I'll have to go back and watch that last sequence again. But yeah, I did not read it ironically at all. And I was like, what the hell is this? This is weird. <laughs> Um, so, so what two scenes of the film kind of sum it, sum it up for you? What, what's good and bad about Greece? What, what two scenes encapsulate that for you? Ooh, I think there's quite a few good scenes in the film. Um, I've, I've, I've already trumpeted Summer Lovin', um, and I, I, I think I really love the, the girls, you know, the Sandra D sing, actually, I, I really enjoy the girls, you know, having their sleepover and the kind of dynamics that are happening there. Um, I, I, uh, I think that, you know, I think those scenes are, are really, really good. The, the scenes where they're interacting together. I think there's a scene also where, uh, the, uh, what's his name the uh let me pull it up uh Kanicki, where yeah. the jeff conaway character by the way jeff conaway played the danny zuko character on the stage and then huh. and then uh, and travolta played a a supporting character on the stage as well but he was too young to play danny zuko and then he's the rising star and jeff conaway gets the supporting role but um I think the scene where Kaniki is asking Zuko to be his lieutenant, like his second at the race. Yeah, yeah. That kind of like, it's kind of like a love scene between two guys it where is. like they kind of pat each other and then they hug and then they pull out their combs immediately embarrassed. I think that summarizes so much about the the macho and somewhat homoerotic <laughs> dynamic of the of the group itself. I think those types of moments are are really really lovely. I kind of think the dance off is not that great. I, I think that, I think that the, I think the whole second half kind of meanders in an odd way. That dance off um, is a really weird sequence. And to me, it doesn't make sense in the, the, 
like to me Sandy seems like a smarter character than that. Yeah. And then when she gets mad at Danny for like having a previous girlfriend, I was like, wait, that's yeah. our second act like pivot? Like this is this is bizarre. I, I think this I think a couple scenes in the second half aren't aren't that great. I think the, the dance off is a weird uh I, I don't think it ever finds the right tone. I think there's so much going on in there. Some of it's dancing. Some of it's like supposed to be the funny sequences where the supporting guys in the group get to be kind of animal house-ish, I think, in their kind of juvenile humor. Um, and there's stuff going on with the, the, the host and his flirting with the girl. And there's a lot of setup in that scene that never pays off with a lot of different threads. I think it's just a, a, a real messy scene. Also, a great scene, by the way, and you mentioned is is the the beauty school dropout scene. Uh, also, I think the drag race is kind of perfunctory. I, I don't think it really matters, and who cares, anyways? And and how it inspires Sandy to decide to be with Danny is because she's watching sure. it and sees him triumphant. I think is is pretty weak sauce in terms of even a music justification for a character in a musical. Um, so I think the the kind of uh, weakness of the plot is pretty evident in that second half. You know, there's really isn't any plot. It's really set pieces. But I think that the strength of some of the set pieces is the strength of the film. No, How about yourself? I think that's fair. Um, yeah, for me, I think the two scenes for me that just are instantly memorable are those two moments where one, when Danny meets Sandy again at the schoolyard and and pivots very quickly from going hyper mass or from being right. kind of a romantic charmer to being hyper masculine and then like you can just see his face going back and forth and then it goes the opposite way the kind of rhyming scene when he's at the diner and uh i think they're doing this dance around the jukebox yeah. where yeah. like he's coming around but yeah. he's got to act this and then like they hide where he's like ordering dinner <laughs> and we're not ordering dinner and you know starts walking away um so yeah. my favorite scenes in it were those kind of outwardly uh critical moments in which they were conscious of of gender stereotypes especially the the masculine ones and the one at the end like you said where Kaniki has gotten hit with the car door and there's this like weird bonding moment where he's like I need you to do the race for me bro <laughs> uh, what did you think was was not that strong I th- again the dance off didn't work for me completely if I look back at the songs um trying to think where's that list of the different songs and moments in there i think one of the main issues i had um was actually just the i know perhaps they had to put like five or six people in each gang for it to feel like robust enough to be its own culture yeah but the way it treats some of the side characters were like the one girl just eats right (laughs) and that's that's her character her her cork and i and i was like okay that's that's kind of weird why wouldn't you like give that to Frenchie for something else to do and then it was, she would feel like a little more nuanced around it because they just get so thin as you go down the ranks away from uh, the second in command uh, and same with the guys you get that one guy who's just kind of a, a doofus who's like constantly talking about trying to get laid and then like get right. self-conscious and his parents are like bawling him out or you know there's and like a couple of weird a bottle sh- in his hand in some films so he's in yeah. some parts of the film so he's supposed to be the drinker in the group too yeah yeah so yeah to me it was it was like those moments but 
I mean, in general, I was like I said, I was I was surprised that I enjoyed uh, Greece as much as I did. I was kind of predisposed to like I was going into that screening like I'm gonna hate this and I'm with the wrong crowd where they were like they were too like amped up, which to me can annoy me going into a movie. Um, because they were just like obnoxiously loud for cheering for, and I was like, man, this is gonna be like watching, you know, Rocky Horror Picture Show, at, which I think would be great to see in one of those screenings where people are interacting with the screen. But I wouldn't necessarily want my first interaction with Rocky Horror Picture Show to be that. I'd want to see it right. in like pure conditions, if we can call it that. So well, I'm so you've seen the light, like the musical light, the beautiful, glorious yeah, musical light. I, I you've, like you've, you've, I l- you've come around <laughs> again. It's not that I dislike musical. It's just like no, I know, man. <laughs> I spent so much time playing bass lines to. Um, West Side Story and, you know, these other ones where it's just like, I, you know, I can't. And so it's just, it's, it's taken me a while. But, you know, I was the same way with Westerns and when I was an undergrad. I'll come back around to musicals. Uh, I, I love musicals. I think West Side Story is kind of an overrated one, a, a, a distinctly overrated one, at least the, the, the film version of it. A, aside from a couple very great you know, classic tunes in it, like America, I, I think it's a, a pretty overrated one. Yeah, to me, it's I, I just remember the, the songs in it more than anything. But, you know, I think last time I looked, I, I looked at like a list of like the 25 musicals, you know, you should see before you die or the AFI's list. And it's like I, I had seen most of them. There were a couple, you know, blank spots on there. Um I, I don't know if I've seen 42nd Street. I've seen one of the... That's Busby Berkeley, right? Um, right. I've seen... I think I saw Footlights. Um, but yeah, th- there's a couple in there that I haven't seen. So those are those are some of my fess-ups. But hopefully I'll get around to them uh, in the future. But... Uh, see, let go me ahead. pull it up because I'm trying to... I saw last year uh, a Gene Kelly musical that he did... I think it's the last one he did with Stanley Donnan. I could be wrong about that, but um, I believe it's called It's Always Fair Weather. Huh. Have you seen this one? I haven't seen that one. I've seen the bandwagon, right? That's or... No, that's a stair. Sorry, yeah. I, but, yeah, I started um, saying it, and I was like, nope. Nope, but uh, it's, it's a really... Uh, I, I'd be curious to get your take on. Yeah, it's the last one I think they co-directed together, and it huh. kind of ended their relationship. And it has, you know, the usual cast of characters, Sid Charisse, and but it's it's really really quite dark. It's about these three like uh, servicemen who were connected before the war. They come back, or after during the war, and then like ten years later, it's it's ten years after the war, and they kind of go off to, to their jobs post-World War II, and then they decide to meet up as a reunion 10 years later, and and they don't get along very well, and it, they're very huh. disconnected, and they're at different times in their lives. It's best it's years of, of our really, lives as a musical. It's a, Yeah, <laughs> it's a really kind of somber, sad film, and then it has like these gorgeous musical sequences in it. I, I don't think it really works completely, but as a weird kind of example of a, of a, of a film that uh, is a odd combination of different tones. I, I think you'd be interested in it. as the famous like roller skating sequence with Gene Kelly down the streets, for example. Sure. But it's it's also got all this other dark material that I, I found pretty fascinating trying to be shoved into a post-war musical. Anyhow, huh. so I'll check that one out. 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Ben. I enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, me too, man. Thank you. We'll have to have you on another time when we got another one to uh, to strike off the list. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ben Sampson. Please tune back in in two weeks when I have Daryl Hodges on to discuss Singing in the Rain. Daryl's a pretty unique individual. He runs a uh, diamond in the rough for most Los Angeles cinephiles. It's called uh, Foreign Exchange Blu-ray Imports, and uh, he, it's really his kind of goal in life to bring uh, region-coded and region-free players into Los Angeles for uh, for cinephiles. So he's ordered me some quite a few indicator titer, titles like uh, Eyes of Laura Mars. I'll be sure to share his link and uh, homepage with the uh, listeners in two weeks. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at the Cinema Doctor, and uh, I'll see you in the next.